I'm Susan Blair, and I'm going to read our scripture for this morning. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 28, through chapter 9, verse 8. It's found on page 813 in your pew Bible, Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thanks for showing us who Jesus is and what he's like. Spirit, thanks for helping us understand, drawing us. Pray now you would do supernatural work in our hearts to grant faith. These passages... Show us a God who is miraculous and powerful and compassionate. We hope for that, and we sit in a space sometimes where that feels far away. So God of the universe who has all power, who can do anything in a moment, who does heal, who does calm storms, who does cast out demons, would you be actively at work in the room now? You don't need our permission, but we welcome you. We ask that you would speak to us, and I would guess there's as many situations and burdens and places of application as there are people in the room. So Holy Spirit, who knows everyone perfectly, would you, would you speak and, and open our hearts? And I pray for those of us who are fatigued and it's been a long season of doubt and despair, would you cause us to want this to be true, to see you as good and beautiful and 
to desire the God who does these kinds of things to be active in our lives. So for those who, who feel like they're out of gas when it comes to faith, would you fill them and would you draw them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I don't know how you feel about this season, but it's this amazing mixture of fun, beautiful, sentimental, childlike moments and some confusing things that have some anguish and some loss and some longing. So we celebrate Advent because it gives us permission and language to say what's true, that we live in between the two comings of Christ, where he came to keep the promises of God as the Messiah born in a manger, who would grow to be a man who would die in our place to forgive us of our sins. And he inaugurated all the promises of God in that moment, and then he died, he rose again, and he ascended back to heaven, promised to come again, sent us his Holy Spirit, and now we sit in this in-between time, between his first coming and his second coming, with all of the longings and aches. His presence is with us, and yet there's still this sense that there's more that we need. And where you feel that, like, I want to just affirm that. You should be in this season in a place where you have, like, a quiet, solid hope and this unrest. Like, there's more that we need. If, if all we had now was all there was, it's just simply not enough. Not, not that God is not enough, but, but we need him to do more in our world, to redeem, to heal, to show his power, to, to come in ways that actually fully restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. And so whether it's your singleness or your marriage or your body or your job or your family, whatever's kind of on display in this season for you of something that you're, you're thankful for and you can lean into and yet you wish it was different. That's the kind of thing that Advent speaks to. And so we've chosen to stay in the book of Matthew because Advent really asks the question, like, who is this Jesus? Who is this baby that was born? And it's the same question that we're answering in the gospel of Matthew in this section as he's just taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And now he's proving that he has the authority to be the one who actually spoke as God into our world to make sense of the world around us. And the people hear him teach and they say, what kind of a person has this kind of authority? And in chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew, Jesus shows the one who has this kind of authority. It's a series of, of miracles and exorcisms and, and healings. He, he raises the dead. He heals the sick. He calms storms. He casts out demons. And all of these are meant to instruct our hearts that the one who taught us about the kingdom is now demonstrating the power of the kingdom. And to your question of, is he real? Does he care? Can he actually do what he said? He could do these stories are meant to instruct our hearts as we lean into the miraculous to the powerful to, to the eternal to the spiritual to the things that Jesus came to do as our Messiah he wasn't just a good teacher he didn't just come to start a new kind of movement of religion he came to actually heal the entire world and, and we sit kind of in this in-between space and so last week we just talked about these two chapters they're actually beautifully organized. Matthew knows that we need help kind of engaging with this, and so he's organized these two chapters with stories that are historically accurate. And he could have told a, a thousand stories, but he chose these nine scenes to give us a glimpse into the kind of power and authority that Jesus has. And so he groups them in three sets of three. So we see three scenes, and then we see a calling to follow, and then three more scenes, and then a call to follow. Then three more scenes, and then a call to follow. And we shouldn't miss the rhythm there. Let me show you who Jesus is, and then ask you to respond to him. 
Let me show you what he's done and what he's like. Let me ask you to respond to him. Let me prove to you that he's the kind of man who wasn't just a mere man, who actually can speak and act on the authority of God because he was God himself. He does things that only God can do, like calm storms and forgive sins and raise the dead. And in that space, then he calls us to follow. And that rhythm, actually, I think is a beautiful instruction for us during Advent, for him to show himself, for you to remember the beauty of who he is, and then to wrestle with this calling. And in this middle section here, these scenes, actually the one right above this is the the storm is the first of this middle section. And then you have the healing of the demoniac, and then you have the healing of the paralytic. Those three scenes actually highlight the reaction of the people in the moment. So the first three miracles that he does at the beginning of chapter 8, there's not much of a response. But, but Matthew takes time to show us how each of these scenes actually solicits a response from those who watch. So look with me in chapter 8, verse 27. Right after he calmed the storm, it says that they, they marveled, saying, what sort of a man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? They watch the miracle, they see it, and then they respond. And then in our reading today, look in verse 34 of chapter 8. Right after he's cast out the demon and they go into this herd of pigs over the hill, the, the crowd goes back to the city. They come back out to meet Jesus. And behold, the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. They see what he's done and they ask him to leave. And then at the end of our section that we read in chapter 9, in verse 8, the crowd saw and they were afraid, that same kind of fear that the people would have experienced from this herd of pigs going off the cliff, having been tormented by these demon-possessed men. They, they were afraid, but now instead of asking him to go away, they glorify God, and, and who had given such authority to men. So, so Matthew's going to ask the question of us, how do you see Jesus? It says at the end of both of these stories, they, they saw him and they had responses to that. So, so the question is, how do you see him? Because when you see his authority for what it is, it demands a response. If he was just a good teacher or just a sentimental baby or just someone that we should sing carols about, maybe you don't have to respond. But if he was God, if he came into the world to heal and to redeem, if he did die on the cross in your place to forgive you of your sins, if he made a way for you to be right with God, then as you encounter him and see him, you have to respond. And you have to respond to him as one who has authority. So, so kind of the series that we're using here is the, the authority of the king. The authority of the king for you to build your life on that he closed the Sermon on the Mount on. Last week we talked about the authority of the king over the physical. Today it's the authority of the king over the spiritual. And then next week we'll talk about the authority of the king over your actual life. But he has authority and you must respond. And we just owned last week that we have kind of a challenging relationship with authority. And it's probably always been that way, but it seems like through COVID and social media, maybe it's just that we're getting older, but we just see more and more abuses around us. And so if you're cautious about authority, you're not alone. And maybe even the church has been a place where authority has been abused or misused. And so to hear a guy that you barely know talk about the authority of Jesus over your life that you must respond to, you might have a reaction to that. just want to own the fact that that's kind of where most of us find ourselves. And yet it doesn't make it untrue that Jesus as the king of the universe has authority over your life. Listen to what one scholar said. He said, the challenge for today's Christian is to ask, what does it mean to recognize and submit to the authority of Jesus himself? 
What does it mean to call him Lord and live by that? There is nothing in the New Testament to suggest that faith is a general awareness of a supernatural dimension or a general trust of the goodness of some distant divinity so that some might arrive at this through Jesus and others through some quite different route. No, faith in Christian terms means believing precisely that the living God has entrusted his authority to Jesus himself, who is now exercising it for the salvation of the world. And here's the good news. Jesus is using his authority to set in motion a great celebration. He came to show his power to actually make all things new and restore things to the way they were supposed to be. And he invites us all to share it. So this isn't just authority for authority's sake, although he has that. What we're seeing in these passages is the way he uses authority is to move towards hurting people, towards outsiders, towards those who are desperate, people like you and like me. He moves towards them with his authority and actually welcomes them to himself. It's a directed kind of authority that actually has a movement where people can actually then encounter Jesus for who he really is. That's the point of these text. And so if that's the stage that's set for us, let's just walk through what these passages show us. And I want to use um, a couple of words that start with P to kind of orient us. He's going to confront the powers of darkness. We're going to see him actually confront the powers of darkness. We're going to see him explain our biggest problem. And we're going to see him begin to fulfill God's promise. So powers, problem, and promise. Look with me in verse 28 of chapter 8. This first Scene here, he says, and when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, and they, and they were so fierce, so so terrifying, so so much power they had that no one could pass by their way. And behold, they cried out when they saw Jesus, "What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time?" So we see in this moment now, Jesus actually as he's calmed the storm. He steps into this other scene, and the demons actually come to Jesus. And they recognize him for who he is. Remember last week we heard him heal the leper and then say, hey, don't talk about this with anybody yet because they're going to misunderstand. What we see is that it's often the Gentile rulers and even demons who rightly know the identity of Jesus. They're not confused at all. Is he just a teacher? Is he a good moral example? Is he somebody who has a good philosophy? Is he going to overthrow Rome? No, they know him to be the very Son of God. So they, they come to him. He confronts them. In that space, they, they see there's a herd of pigs over there. They, they know that they're in trouble. They ask, are you coming here to torment us? They know they deserve judgment. And with this herd of pigs feeding at some distance, verse 31, the demons beg him, saying, if you cast us out, can you send us into that herd of pigs? And he said to them, go. And if you were reading this in one section, you remember earlier in chapter 8, this centurion says to Jesus, hey, I know what it's like to be under authority. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to one, come, and he comes. To one, do this, and he does that. So in this moment, Jesus just speaks a word, go, and it happens, showing his authority over the spiritual world. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and the sea, and they drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen, they, they're freaked out, right? They flee, they go to the city, 
and they, they told everything that happened. And you would think, like, this is a huge loss, right? All of these pigs, and there are other parallel passages in other Gospels, we're, we're hearing, like, thousands of pigs, right? The economic impact here would be massive. But they, they tell of everything that happened, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. The focus is not on the loss of the economic situation with the pigs and the herd. The focus is on what Jesus did with these demon-possessed men. And then again, they come out, they see, they meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they ask him to leave their region. All right, this first movement here, Jesus confronts the powers of darkness. The Bible speaks of a world that contains what we can see and touch and what we cannot see and touch. You can't actually believe the Bible without believing in the supernatural. Actually, Advent is full of all kinds of supernatural moments. Right? There's angels that appear. There's this conception through a virgin birth. God himself actually becoming man. There is miracles all over this thing. Now, we can sentimentalize that and make it just traditions and miss it, but, but Advent is God breaking into our world, the spiritual God of the universe who created the physical world breaking in. And the testimony of Scripture is that God rules both the physical world and the spiritual world. And we have a real enemy. We're introduced to him at the very beginning in Genesis, this snake, this viper who would lie to God's people about his trustworthiness and his goodness. We see his activity throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. He's called a dragon. He's called a liar. He's called a slanderer. He's called the accuser of, of God's people. We, we see this ancient enemy as well. And it's not that there are two rival gods who are duking it out. The scriptures are clear that this one enemy of God is created. He's submissive and subservient to God. Every time we see him interact with God, he is in the lower position. He is getting instructed. He is asking permission. He, he is under the authority of God. But he's real. And there are real spiritual forces around us. And I don't know where you find yourself kind of post-enlightenment in 2021, but, but the world the Bible describes is one full of things that you can see and touch and things that you can't see and touch. It explains a ton about why evil exists and how it is in the world and, and why you struggle in places that don't make sense to you. That you have an ancient enemy that lies to you, that uses shame and fear and temptation. And Jesus wasn't content just to let him roam the earth. He came to actually show his power over this one. And back in that story in Genesis, after that temptation of God's people that he wasn't trustworthy, that they should go take matters into their own hands, they listened to the viper. God promises, hey, one day I'm going to come, send a descendant who will crush the head of this serpent. And that serpent will bite his heel, but he will crush his head. And God promised way back at the beginning to come and defeat our ancient enemy. And what Jesus is showing in this moment is his power and authority over the spiritual powers. He's, he's confronting them. So it's not just storms. It's not just sickness. He actually comes and he confronts the scariest things that we can imagine. Even demons themselves are underneath his authority. So we said last week, and this is not like just me exaggerating, Christmas is a declaration of war. You cannot make sense of Christmas biblically without understanding the ancient war and Jesus coming to declare victory over his ancient enemy. And he's doing things like this in this moment that are inaugurating that, and he will accomplish it on the cross, put a down payment on it, 
through his resurrection and promised to finally return one day and end all things and make all things new. You can't understand Christmas without understanding the spiritual, without understanding the supernatural, without understanding that there's an ancient war going on. So Jesus comes and he confronts the powers of darkness. Now, I don't know how that hits you. I remember reading the Bible with our kids, and when they were little kids and we would act out certain stories, they would just kind of receive this, hear this, and keep moving. But somewhere around middle school, as we're reading the Bible, I have a distinct memory of going through one of these passages, reading about a demon and an exorcism, and Elizabeth just going, wait, like that's, that's real? Like that actually, that's not just like movies, that's not just how that actually happens, and there's this like incredulity a little bit for her little modern mind making sense of the spiritual world. She has a, an image from movies in Hollywood, and there's this kind of unease about it, but she didn't have a biblical framework of, oh, yeah, there are real powers, there are real enemies. And I don't know where you sit with that. Maybe Hollywood has so set you up in one of two directions. Either it's been so exaggerated, it just feels comical to you, and you imagine some guy in a red jumpsuit with a pointy tail and some horns making jokes, or it's so terrifying, so sensational, so over the top that you're not sure what to do with it. Are we, our worldviews are more shaped by our media, by our movies, by our culture than they are from the scriptures. We should just own that. And just like clock time, just ask, like, where did you get more information from this week? I'm mean, like, no condemnation, same for me as well, but like, just be aware of that. Like, we are hearing more and more and more from our culture. So even if you're resisting it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make it untrue. And the good news is, to what is scary or confusing, what we see is Jesus come and show his authority. Jesus comes and confronts these demons. So what we see here is that it's real. Right? We, we learn a couple things. We don't learn everything that we want to know. There's actually some more passages in Matthew that deal with demons and exorcisms. So we'll save some instruction, not like of how to do it, but what else the Bible says. We'll save some of that for a little bit later. But here's some things that we do know, that, that, it, that it's real and that these forces are powerful. Right? Did you catch that word? It says that they're fierce, that, that they're causing trouble. They're, they're really scary. The culture around them is adjusting to, to the fierce power that they have. But not only are they real and powerful, they're under the authority of Jesus. As soon as they see him, look in verse 29, they cry out, Son of God. And they know that he is the Lord, he is the judge. And so they ask, hey, have you come here to torment us before the time? Knowing that there's an appointed time. That God's sovereignly ruling over all of the world, even allowing the effects of sin in ways that we wish he wouldn't or that we don't understand or that we get confused by or that really wrestle with our faith, even in that space we see here in this passage that there is a time when God will come and judge his ancient enemy and all of sin and make all things right and new. So they are under his authority and they are under his judgment. There's a ton that we wish we could learn, but those four things are enough to just see Jesus interacting with the dark forces, right? This section of Matthew is Jesus showing his authority over the things that often have authority over you or things that often feel powerful to you or things that actually control you to see Jesus having power over the scariest things, Jesus having control over the things that often control you. That little explanation is enough to go, man, Jesus comes and he's not just teaching. He's not just modeling. He has supernatural power to deal with supernatural forces. And there's two mistakes that we can make. One is to minimize this and one is to exaggerate it. And the scriptures won't let us do either one. They make us be honest, they make us be sober-minded, they make us be, be honest about what's actually happening. So let me just look at a couple of passages with you again. We won't say everything there is to say, but if you're taking notes, would you just write this down? This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 
uh, 13 to 15. It starts with this like understanding of our sin. It says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, right? all of us were on the outside, we learned last week. And in the uncircumcision of the flesh, right, we were distant from God. We've been made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us and its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Where does Jesus finally defeat his enemy? It's on the cross. And then verse 15, And he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What do we learn about the spiritual forces? One, that, that they have been defeated on the cross that Jesus rules and reigns over them, they've been put to public shame, which speaks to some of why they still rattle, why they still are aggressive, right? What Jesus did shamed the spiritual powers of the dark world. Secondly, we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see that he has still power and that he's roaring like a lion and he wants to actually do you harm. These are not just ideas. These are not just philosophies. These are real spiritual beings. And verse Peter 5 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we see he's been put to shame. We see there is some power. And we see our call is not necessarily to go toe-to-toe, but to submit to God and then to resist. Our reaction should be to submit to God, who is the one who has authority over the evil powers, and then to resist. So James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Our repentance is this response. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He's the one who has authority. He's the one that angels and the dark forces submit to. So we actually submit ourselves to God, and then we resist the evil one. Jesus wants to expose the powers of darkness in this section, proving not just authority over the physical, but over the spiritual as well. Our second thing we see is he explains what our biggest problem is. He's exposing those powers in the next story He explains what we actually need to wrestle with as our biggest problem. You and I think the problem is on the outside, and the solution often comes from the inside. But the Bible would say the problem is on the inside, and the solution comes from the outside and the mercy and grace of Jesus on our behalf. So look with me in chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when they saw Jesus, or when Jesus saw their faith, Uh, He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, here's a paralytic, a paralyzed person, so paralyzed they have to be carried into Jesus. So the problem is obviously physical, right? And as soon as Jesus sees them, he goes at the bigger problem. Not just the physical, but actually the spiritual. And he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Now in this section maybe you would either hear a record scratch or what you see from the religious leaders is outrage. They're maybe fine with some like random healings which weren't uh, out of the question or totally uncommon in the ancient world, but to have somebody actually declares that your sins can be forgiven is something that only God can do, which is why the religious leaders in verse 3 say, this man is blaspheming. 
taking the name of God out of place in ways that actually claiming to be God himself. This man is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. They, they know this. So when Jesus says this, it's a claim to be equal to God. So in those spaces, he's not just a teacher. He's not just a philosophy leader. He's not just a moral example. He's saying, I have the power not only over the dark forces, but actually over your biggest problem, which is sin. So verse 4 of chapter 9 Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And something about that just captured me. So it's not just this cognitive thing. You don't just think thoughts. Your thoughts come from your heart, which makes sense of where sin actually dwells. It makes sense of your passions. It's not just poetry that comes from your heart. Everything comes from your heart. All of your reactions and actions, all of your desires, all of your fears... So he says, why are you thinking evil inside of you? Which is where the promises of the Old Testament actually came to, to actually fulfill a new heart. That the promise of Messiah was going to be one that's going to come and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. But Jesus just goes past the physical to, to the spiritual, past your thoughts, down to the interior of who you are, all the way to your heart. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then he just says, all right, so which one's easier? Your sins, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you can know that the Son of Man, here's that word, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. All right, the harder thing, the deeper thing, the more important thing is actually the spiritual thing. He says, man, I've done actually the hardest work. I did, I did what was most necessary. I actually spoke forgiveness over sins. But just so that you are clear about that. Let me do the easy thing now and actually heal this person as well. Let me do what you can see to validate what you can't see. Let me do in the physical realm to prove to you that I have authority in the spiritual realm. And it says kindly and tenderly and confrontationally to us, our biggest problem is inside. So the reason why Jesus didn't just come as a baby and teach, he went all the way to the cross and died was that we needed a sacrifice for our sins. So Christmas, again, is this declaration of war, and it's war on your sin. It's war on your rebellion. It's war on your distance from God. That God in His love showed mercy to absorb the weight and penalty of that on the cross so that you could be forgiven and free, just like this man was forgiven and free. To have kind of this crippledness and this handicap actually healed, right? To take away... The, the pain and stain of original sin and set you up in a spot where you could actually have a soft heart towards God. That's what the Messiah came to do. He came to confront the dark powers and he came to show and expose and reveal and explain what is your biggest problem. And those two stories then leave us with two responses, right? Remember, they have the crowd. They're both afraid. Those who saw the demoniac and the, the exorcism and those who watch this paralytic get up and, and walk, they, it says they're both afraid. They're both terrified. And one says to Jesus, please leave. And the other one says to Jesus, may God be glorified by the one who actually gave this man authority. So you should just stop in your own heart and go, when you see Jesus, what's your response? When you see the power of Jesus, what's your response? When Jesus confronts you, What's your response? When you see him in the word and you hear his voice and he calls out to you and he, he speaks something to you, 
what do you do with that? Do you tell him to go away? Or do you welcome what he's saying and understand it's from God for your good and for his glory? There's two kinds of responses, right? All the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, there's these two choices. And Matthew's keeping that in front of us in ways that call us to actually follow and make a choice about Jesus. So as you wrestle with that, confronting the dark powers and actually then explaining our biggest problem, let me just kind of zoom out for a second and let you see that both of these stories show us that Jesus came to actually inaugurate and fulfill the promises of God. Because God had promised not just to leave us on our own, but to come into our world to actually make a way for us to actually be healed. And so, so we see actually what Jesus is doing even in the forgiveness of sin is him uh, dealing with the effects of the sin that he actually came to die for. Jesus is dealing with the effects of sin that he actually came to die for, one scholar said. So in that moment, what he's dealing with is our, our biggest problem and calling us then to trust him. Because the promise of the Messiah wasn't just to come back and fulfill a political kingdom, wasn't just to come and, and teach some new things, it was to make all things new. That's the promise in the garden. As the curse is being dealt with and being given to us, there's this promise that God's going to come and make all things new. And if you go to the very end of the scriptures, you see him back in a garden making all things new. The first two chapters start in a garden. The last two chapters end in a garden. The story in the middle is God keeping his promise to his people to fulfill his promises, to actually come to restore and to heal. And that's what Christmas is about. It's not just a declaration of war and war on your sin. It's that he actually won the war and made a way for you to be forgiven and free and to actually have all the broken things begin to be unraveled and then restored and healed. Let me just give you some passages from the Old Testament that kind of give this longing and this promise that God was going to come and actually heal what was the biggest problem for us. So if you're taking notes, this is Isaiah 33, verse 24. He says this, this is like a prophecy of what the Messiah is going to come and do. And it says, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. He's going to come and deal with sickness, right? You see that in Revelation. He comes and heals and wipes away tears. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. He takes our sickness and our sin upon himself. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus, the promised Messiah, came to fulfill the promise of God to come and make a way for us to actually have our sins forgiven. So when he declares to this crippled man, hey, I came to solve your biggest problem. Your sins are forgiven. He's fulfilling what was promised in the Old Testament. One, one more. This is Micah chapter 7, verses eight, 18 and 19. Micah chapter 7, 18 and 19 says this, Who is a God like you? Well, God is like you that comes actually to his people, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Christmas is a declaration of, of war. It's war on all the things that are broken. And the starting place for you is the brokenness inside your heart. And to stop and hear that God kept his promise to fix your biggest problem gives you a ton of hope. And, and that he defeated the things that often control you, that you're afraid of, that he has power over the scariest things in your life gives you a ton of hope. 
hope to actually change? If Jesus has already dealt with the biggest problem on the inside and has, has made your heart new by His grace, by forgiving of your sin, and He's dealt with your ancient enemy that tempts you and taunts you and lies to you and, and shames you, if He's done that, then there's real hope for your real transformation. It's not just ideas and learning. He actually came to deal with the heart, right? The thinking that comes from your heart, Jesus came to heal. Application of a passage like this doesn't stay out there on cliffs where there's pigs and where there's mats where paralytics lay. It comes into your heart to say, hey, friend, where you feel really stuck, where it's been like decades, where it's actually been generations, and you feel like your only choice up to this point is to repeat the cycle that's always been going, to hear the good news that Jesus promises to fulfill and keep his kingdom commands to make all things new, changes everything for you. So we say our church's mission is to proclaim hope and to pursue transformation that can only be found in Jesus. This Jesus is not just a good teacher. He didn't just stay a little baby. He came and showed his power over the most powerful things in the universe and solved your biggest problem. So there is hope for your change. There's hope when you're stuck in the middle and you're feeling the weight of that temptation, right? You, you actually welcome it. The passage says that we should resist temptation, but we actually welcome it. We nurture it. We cultivate it. We hold on to it. And in those spaces when it's late at night and it's just you by yourself to hear the good news that because Jesus came, you're actually not by yourself. There's actually hope because the Spirit of God came after Christ died on the cross to fill his followers with his very presence. So even in those dark places where you feel utterly alone to hear the good news, that because he beat the dark powers and he, and he dealt with your biggest problem and he's fulfilling his promises, you're not alone in those moments where you feel utterly overwhelmed. And so you can actually now join him in this war, this war against sin. That you can actually resist the evil one You can submit yourself to God. Ephesians 6 says that this battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not limited things that we can just see and touch. There is a spiritual battle going on and describes what Christ has done for us, right? That he's saved us, that he's made us righteous, that he's welcomed us in truth, that he's filled us with peace, and he's given us his word, and he's given us faith to do real battle. So you cannot even just cry out to him. You actually have the ability to stand firm. Because your ancient enemy has been shamed publicly on the cross, you don't have to sin. You don't have to play out that narrative of your family history. You don't have to stay stuck. There's real hope and real transformation because God really came as the Messiah, demonstrating his power. That's what we celebrate every week. And I'm reminded as I prepared, we come to be reminded of what is true. I don't know how much you thought about demons this week. How how much even you thought about what your biggest problem was. Maybe all week long you've spent all your energy trying to fix stuff on the outside, not realizing that your biggest problem is on the inside, and asking the God who came to step in your place to heal that to actually come near to you. We come to this place to be reminded, and, and kids are amazing, and we sing great songs, but all of those are aimed at reminding you God is real. He loves you. He died in your place. And there's hope for you to actually change and be transformed. Not because you can be better and try harder, but because of what Christ has already done. Matthew's putting in front of us this beautiful mosaic of the authority of God so that you can trust him. 
The New Testament would say the apex of that authority is demonstrated on the cross where he dies in our place to forgive us of our sins. And so we take communion every week as a way both to remember but also to declare, to say this is our hope, this is our trust, this is what we're putting everything in, that God actually came among us. He took on a physical form. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved and took on the wrath of God on our behalf. And it's in his broken body and his shed blood that we actually have a way to go forward. That's the good news of the gospel. If you're wondering what Christianity is about, if you're here visiting with family or you've been checking us out for a while or you're watching online and you're like, man, what what is this whole thing about? It's about that. It's about this God who showed his power to make a way for you to actually be healed and redeemed. And so we get a chance to settle our hearts and to trust him, to remember what he did, remind ourselves of what is true and the power that he's shown, and then take some time to go, God, would you help me apply that to my heart? So if you're a follower of Jesus, in the moment I want to invite you to take communion. The way we do it is to come forward, so we've changed it up a little bit. We'll come down these middle rows. There'll be people in the front. One will hold a basket of bread. We'll take a piece of bread, and they'll say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. You'll step over to the next person. There's a cup there, and you'll dip it in the cup, and they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for your life, reminding you that the one who had all the authority in the universe used that authority for your reconciliation, your redemption, and your forgiveness. That's the good news. There's a station over here that's gluten-free, and there's some little kind of individual serving communions. If that's more comfortable for you because of COVID, you're welcome to come around the outside aisle and grab those. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so grateful that you're here. What this section of Matthew is doing for us is showing us who Jesus is. It's the question you're asking. Is there hope? What's real? What's the purpose of life? Those questions are being answered in these chapters. And so I would invite you just to pray where you are. Don't come take communion. Just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of the little bulletin that you got that would give you some examples of what it could sound like to cry out to God. But just pray for a moment. Ask God to speak to you. Ask him to help you. If you're struggling with faith, if you want to believe, there's prayers there that will help in the moment. When we're done, I would love to visit with you as long as you want about what it means to trust Christ. But as we transition now, let me just invite everyone who trusts Jesus to come and take communion. I'll pray, we'll take communion, and then we'll sing a little bit. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you actually conquered the dark forces. Thanks that you, you dealt with our biggest problem, and thanks that you came and put a deposit and a down payment on your promises to come and make all things new. Would you now fill the room with faith, because we're struggling, we hurt, there's places where we're confused. Would you help us now in this place to trust you And would you come in our hearts with the same kind of power that you came to these people in this passage? By your spirit, would you come to your people? Would you speak to them? Would you stir their faith? Would you help? Even while we declare the truth that your broken body and shed blood is our hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name.